From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. Welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, Associate Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. Today we're joined by Dr. Peg Yakabuchi and Blaze Campbell. Peg is a professor of geology here at BGSU and the principal investigator and project director of a three-year, nearly $1 million grant funded by the National Science Foundation's Advanced Program, which is committed to increasing the participation of women in STEM fields. Blaze is a PhD student in Bowling Green's Higher Education and Student Affairs Program and the graduate assistants on the BG Allies team. The BG Allies program aims to develop systemic approaches to increase gender equity for faculty in STEM disciplines. To accomplish this, BGSU Allies is developing models and policies to train faculty allies to reduce biases that impede the career advancement of women and other minoritized faculty. Peg and Blaze, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us. Let's start out with just some basic explanation of the grant that you received from the National Science Foundation. What is its purpose and who is it targeted at? What existing problems is it trying to solve? So the BGSU Allies Project is seeking to address some of the barriers that women and other minoritized faculty in STEM disciplines here at BGSU face in terms of their career advancement. Our preliminary research data collection efforts have shown that women and minority faculty are not represented in our applicant pools for faculty positions at the same rate they are earning PhDs. We also found that, especially at the mid-career level, associate professor level, women and minority faculty are stalling out. They're less likely to go up for full professor. They're less likely to move into leadership positions in particular. And all of these things seem to be tied to some systemic and interpersonal issues reflecting biases that are serving as barriers to women and minority faculty here at BGSU. This initiative has a two-pronged approach that is about both inclusive leadership and faculty allies. Can you talk about the goals of each aspect of the project? How do they relate to each other? So research has shown clearly that in order to really transform an institution of higher education, you need to work both bottom-up and top-down. So the faculty allies portion of our project is focusing on how we can work with faculty within STEM and social science departments here at BGSU to learn more about some of these barriers that women faculty face and to learn specific strategies to address things like microaggressions and the everyday biases and barriers that faculty face within their own departments. The inclusive leadership piece is really focusing more top-down, working with faculty administrators. Chairs and directors in particular have a really strong influence on what happens and the work experiences of the faculty in those units. We are also working with associate deans, deans, and working with the provost to look at institution-wide policies and practices that may need to be changed in order to reduce those barriers to women. Blaze, what does it mean for you to participate in a project like this, especially as a graduate student in your PhD program? What drew you to this work and what are you getting out of it? It means a lot. And so prior to entering my PhD program, I worked in student affairs within higher education. And so a lot of my interest has always focused personally and professionally on issues of social justice within higher education. However, 
all of my research, professional experiences, it was really centered on students and getting them to to form their allyship development and how staff can really be instrumental in that approach. And so when the opportunity presented itself to be a part of this program, I was drawn to it, one, because it gave me an opportunity to learn more about the academic side of things and issues facing faculty role. And so I see myself going into that role probably <laughs> after this. And so learning how I can, you know, see some of the the structural ways women in faculty roles, what they face and the barriers. That was something that I really wanted to learn more about. And then secondly, as I spoke to, so presenting, doing workshops, facilitating ways to engage people around these topics is something that I'm really passionate about. And so getting to do that for faculty and learning how people um, are doing that in an effective way to really foster allyship within the faculty and academic side of things was something that I really wanted to be a part of. And Peg is my direct supervisor. And so I primarily work on the faculty ally side of things. And it just so happens to be all women within that team that I'm working with. And so that wasn't something on purpose. And so I just benefit from having all of these role models to really learn from across disciplines with within BGSU. And so that means for me and my professional development that I'm I'm not only learning about these things of how to be a, a better facilitator and be effective in really transforming culture within the higher education setting, but I'm also studying my supervisor and all, all of the rest of the women on the team on how I can really leverage myself and develop myself into a professional going into research and teaching and things like that. So it's been really awesome. That's great. Peg, what does it mean for you personally to be able to open the door to more women in STEM fields? How has your own experience shaped your commitment and thinking through of this project? I can actually take this back to kindergarten. I was in kindergarten right as the missions to the moon were were closing out in the early mid-70s. And, you know, first week of kindergarten, teacher asks what everyone wants to be when they grow up. And of course, I said astronaut, because, oh, my gosh, I want to be an astronaut between the moon missions and Star Trek. I mean, why wouldn't you? And my teacher said, well, I'm sorry, honey, you can't be an astronaut because you're a girl and girls can't be astronauts, which was true at the time because you had to be an Air Force pilot to be an astronaut. And only men were allowed into the pilot program in the Air Force at the time. And, you know, I, I just shrugged it off. I was like, oh, OK, never mind then. And then I read a book on dinosaurs about a week later and said, OK, I'm going to be a paleontologist. And here I am, 51 years old and a paleontologist. So I encountered this barrier of women and girls in STEM very early on. And I'm pleased that my kindergarten teacher did not tell me that I couldn't be a paleontologist, which was helpful, and that I had a lot of support from teachers and from my parents working my way up through high school and into college to be a scientist. There was a lot of encouragement that this was something that I can do if I was passionate about it. When I got to college, I really confronted some of those barriers firsthand. Having faculty dismiss me, having faculty, you know, not answer my questions or acknowledge my raised hand, having other students harass me, things like that. That was a very eye-opening experience for me in college to see that there was a lot of institutional and interpersonal barriers that I hadn't really encountered as a high school student. And then moving on into grad school and thinking and reading about issues of women faculty 
especially in academic settings, and what it's like for women in a very man-dominated discipline like the geosciences, which is, has one of the lowest participation rates for women of all of the sciences, and some of the unique challenges of that, working in the field when you're the only woman in a group of folks out camping for three weeks in the middle of nowhere, and the personal issues and safety issues that can come up. So there's a, there's a discussion that started in the 1990s when I was in grad school about how we can encourage more women to go into the geosciences, specifically given these pretty significant barriers that are not just STEM-related or science-related, but uh, related to the discipline itself. So when I came here to BGSU, I started in 1999, I was immediately interested in working on diversity and inclusion issues and got involved pre-tenure on a number of initiatives um, and a number of university structures like the Equal Opportunity Compliance Commission, the university's Equity and Diversity Committee, things like that. So I've been working on issues of equity and diversity, you know, going way back to my very first days here at BGSU. So it was so exciting to get together with a group of people and work on these uh, proposals for the National Science Foundation and then successfully land almost a million dollars to work on this stuff. I want to talk a bit about the harmful yet sometimes invisible cultural norms that this project is seeking to address. Can you talk a little bit about disparities in faculty workload? and how that affects women's and minorities' advancement. So we've done research on this area, including looking at survey data, climate survey data from a climate survey that we created, plus the COACH survey, which is a national survey of faculty satisfaction. We also did an interview study led by our colleagues, Dr. Lisa Hanasono from the School of Media and Communication and Dr. Alan Broido from the Department of Higher Education and Student Affairs, where we interviewed a number of tenured and tenure track faculty about workloads and in particular about service. All of those pieces of information are telling us that women have higher teaching uh, workloads and definitely higher service workloads, especially in areas that are more invisible, not valued or rewarded in our institutional structures, in particular types of service that are relationally based. So mentoring students, advising students, all of the informal work, writing letters of recommendation, uh, that women and minority faculty have a significantly higher burden of those. And those are exactly the kinds of service activities that get left off of annual performance evaluations and tenure and promotion packets. Blaze, I'm wondering if drawing on your experience in the classroom before and now as a graduate student, do you see some of those sorts of secret service creep happening? Most definitely. And so within the student affairs role, if if you are one of few people of color, if you're one of few women, if you're one of few whatever marginalized identity and that is the same for your students. There's not many of them and they're looking for mentorship. They're looking for someone that they really can connect to and feel like they can bond with. That's why I got into this work. It's hard for me to say that it's a burden. However, when it goes unrecognized and when you have this extreme workload administratively, it does become challenging. And so that's definitely something that I've experienced in my professional role within student affairs, but also in teaching. And so those letters of recommendations, those one-on-one encounters that I have with students. And so I love that work. And I think a lot of people who are speaking out about this and doing research, they were not speaking out in terms of we don't want to do it. But these are the things that really push the field forward, whatever field you're in. These are the things that go into why you would want a career in higher education. And so for them not to be valued and for them to get left off of things within academia um, and, you know, on evaluations and things like that. 
it's very, it's very hurtful. It's very hurtful. And so figuring out ways for those types of services to be acknowledged and for them to be counted and for you to know that they're really connected to retention on all levels, whether it's staff and faculty and students and their persistence and their sense of belonging on these campuses. Well, and that's another question, which is we know that student retention is really tied to them identifying faculty that they see as role models, that they see as invested in their future, right? So we know that we're supposed to really encourage those kinds of connections with students, yet there can be unexpected consequences on faculty. So burnout. So Peg, could you talk a bit about how faculty burnout plays into this ceiling with career advancement? As Blaise mentioned, a lot of the faculty, when they were asked about this kind of service work, a lot of them said that it's not valued by their department, it's not being recognized and rewarded, but it's really important to them. On the flip side, a lot of faculty said this is becoming burdensome. And it especially was true of our minority faculty and our international faculty who are often approached by, for example, one of our interviewees talked about how students from her country seek her out to be the mom, to be the cool aunt who takes them shopping and helps them navigate life in the United States, but they would never consider her as their advisor because she's not a man and you know men in their culture it's more important that a man be their advisor and this particular person was expressing some frustration that there's a point where you have to say no to protect yourself and so this idea of burnout that women faculty and minority faculty are spending so much time doing work that's important that they actually value but it's really hurting them and it's hurting them both in terms of their career. It's also hurting them personally in terms of the work-life balance and just having time to get everything else that needs to get done. So I think burnout is one of the really important negative consequences of not paying attention to having workloads be as equitable as possible and communicating that both to faculty, chairs, directors, but also to students and to let students know that we love to be here for you. We love to be your role models, but pay a little attention to how much of a burden you're placing on some faculty over others. Can you talk a little bit about the three I's of the program, inclusion, intersectionality, and interconnections? What do each of these terms mean, and how are you tying those ideas to actual workshops, training modules, and on-the-ground practices? Inclusion, everyone has their own definition of inclusion. For, for me, thinking about inclusion, a, an inclusive place, an inclusive workplace is one where everyone feels welcomed, where everyone feels valued for their unique experiences that they bring to the table. Everyone feels that they have what they need to succeed. So we're trying to build inclusive workplaces where everyone feels welcomed, valued, and supported. Our middle one, intersectionality, it's really important to pay attention to the fact that we all have multiple identities. Our social identities are myriad, that they intersect in complex, unpredictable ways sometimes, and they change over time. So that we can't just do a program for women that's really primarily for straight, white, married women with small children and say that we're helping women. We need to pay attention to the way intersecting identities impact different women differently in the, in the workplace. And in particular, how having multiple minoritized identities, being a woman but also a faculty of color, being a woman and an international faculty member, being a woman who's caring for elderly parents or has a disability, those are all potentially going to look different in terms of how we can intervene to help make them feel included, valued, and supported in the workplace. 
marketplace. And our third I, interconnections. One of the biggest complaints we have heard from faculty here, and it aligns perfectly with research nationwide, is that women, especially women in STEM, feel extremely isolated. We're often working in a lab by ourselves, long hours, nights and weekends, and, you know, head down, we got to get this work done. We're not even communicating with other people in our own unit, and we're certainly not talking to people outside our unit. So often, if you're the only woman in your discipline, in your department, and we have departments right now that have one woman faculty member in STEM, or two, or maybe even three, very exciting. But we have a lot of situations where you might be the only woman, um, you might be only pre-tenure woman or tenure track woman in your department. You're very isolated and you have no one to talk to. We also found talking to chairs and directors that they feel very isolated because they're no longer part of the faculty. So they can't bounce ideas off the faculty because now they're supervising the faculty, but they've not had opportunities to build those relationships across departments. So a big part of what we're doing, both with our faculty allies program and with our chairs directors, is trying to build a sense of interconnection and community. That we now have two cohorts of faculty allies who have been trained. It's over 80 faculty across STEM and social science departments here at BGSU who are now part of a community. We have the same vocabulary. We've talked about the same kinds of problems, issues, and strategies to address them. So we're building these communities across campus to help provide a network of support and also engage networks of power so that chairs, directors, and faculty don't feel isolated. They know where they can go to get help, to get support, and to get feedback. Let's pause for a quick break. Thanks for listening to the Big Ideas Podcast. If you are passionate about Big Ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. So one of the things I hear you both talking about is not just thinking in the moment, right, but really trying to create opportunities for the next generation of leaders. So can you talk a bit about what you see as the difference between advocacy and allyship? And how is it that you move from just sort of calling out or calling in sort of bad behavior to actually transforming institutions to be more inclusive? The Faculty Ally Program, we're doing a half-day workshop that's really focused on bystander intervention, exactly what she said. What do you do in the moment, in a situation? How can you step up and speak up so that your silence is not complicity uh, and doesn't, doesn't indicate consent to what's happening? But that's, and that's critical. It's critically important to shaping the day-to-day experiences of faculty in, in our departments. But it's not the only thing you need to really transform the institution. And that's why in addition to working with chairs and directors and working with faculty, we're also looking at policy issues across the university, data collection practices across the university. We need to better understand the experiences of our our faculty, especially faculty with complex intersecting identities. So we need to be able to know who those people are. And right now we don't have the best data systems to understand who our faculty even are. And we also really need to think about the top-down message that policies and practices send. And so we're working on a a number of policy revisions 
that will help reduce some of these structural barriers we have to the full participation of women in STEM careers in particular. I'm curious, there has been much in the news over the last several years with periodically folks saying things like, well, the reason women are underrepresented in STEM fields is that they don't have the aptitude or the interest. Um, So what do you say to those folks who think that we've already come far enough and that the issue is actually in um, women and underrepresented groups themselves? I've certainly come across that idea for a long time, going back to my grad school days when Larry Sumner said essentially the same thing, maybe we should be investigating whether women don't have the aptitude for STEM that men do. So I would say those ideas are out there. Research does not back them up at all. I mean, this this is not a matter of an opinion or thinking about it. We have concrete research that shows that women and girls are interested in science. I do a lot of outreach to second graders. They all love dinosaurs. I can confirm in my personal experience that uh, second graders love dinosaurs, third graders love dinosaurs. By the time you get to seventh or eighth grade, girls are getting the message that if you want to be popular, you better not be good at math and science. And studies have shown that in some cases, by seventh grade, girls have made a decision that science isn't for them. And minority students as well, a colleague of mine in in Chicago, looking at the Chicago public schools, found that students of color who by seventh grade are making a decision about whether they're even going to finish high school or not, let alone go to college. So I think research shows clearly that every little kid is a scientist and every little kid loves science and that the middle grades are a pivotal point when girls are given a message that this isn't for them. And then that is reinforced through high school and college and their experiences, their experiences with their peers, their experiences with teachers, their experiences of the kinds of barriers that we still face. The lack of role models. You go to college thinking you're going to be a scientist and then you struggle a little bit your first semester and you're told, yeah, maybe this isn't for you instead of let's find a way to solve this problem and keep you in. Blaze, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the interrelationship between having visible faculty from underrepresented groups and how that directly impacts students. Yeah, that is exactly where my mind was going, how you hear this phrase over and over again, and and sometimes it feels like it's overused, but representation matters. And Every time I am in a talk or even at the movies, it recurs to me again that representation matters. And it's a direct indicator in a lot of cases of how I feel about my capabilities. And sometimes you need that reminder by seeing someone, whether it is someone black, whether it's a woman of color, whether it is someone with a disability that, hey, they're doing it. I can show up and I can do it too. And I have what it takes. And so it's extremely important. Going back to a few questions ago um, when I talked about the fact that I am on this team with all women faculty, the part of it that I work with. So every Tuesday, I'm in these meetings with women who are doing amazing research within the grant project as well as outside of it in their home disciplines. And you know, doing the work that I have to do for the grant, but also studying them and how they have been able to be successful means a lot to me. And so figuring out that, hey, 
I have what it takes to do research. They're doing it and they're doing it amazingly. They're staying true to themselves. Their positionality is rooted in the things that they're studying. I don't have to put my blackness to the side. I don't have to put, you know, where I come from from the side. That can be related to the things that I like to do as far as my professional, you know, what I'm researching or what I want to present at a conference. Those role models are extremely important. The ones that I have that are directly in my life as well as the ones that I get to meet at conferences and hear speak just from the privilege of being a PhD student. It's extremely, extremely important. Going back to your last question, I think that the easy answer is to put all the blame on the person in terms of why why there aren't more women or why there are not more people of color going into STEM roles without acknowledging that we receive messages from early on about what we should be doing, what we're good at, and those things stick. It sticks for you as a person receiving them, but the people who are giving them, they've been told those messages. So teachers and those that, that kids really see as role model figures, if you're telling me indirectly and directly that I'm not good at math and science. At some point in time, I'm going to believe that and I'm not going to be interested in anymore. And so we all need work on figuring out what our implicit biases are so that we can really disrupt them and not be so quick to blame the particular group on why there are not more compositional diversity within whatever field. We talk a lot about interdisciplinarity at ICS, and I know that the grant team, as you've mentioned, includes members from multiple disciplines. Can you talk about the range of disciplines included and some of the challenges and rewards of collaboration across and between disciplines? Our grant team includes natural scientists from the School of Earth Environment Society, that would be me, and Dr. Sheila Roberts, who's Associate Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences and is also a geologist, Karen Root in biology. We also have Michael Gawa, Vice President for Research and Economic Development, who is a chemist. So we have the natural sciences well represented, but we also have amazing social scientists from School of Media and Communication, from Higher Education and Student Affairs, from the College of Business in the Department of Management. And it's been amazing for me personally to be able to work with all of these extraordinary people who all have a real passion for improving gender equity and and inclusion here at BGSU. And it's been just personally incredibly rewarding to work with this amazing group of people. What about for you, Blaze? How has it made you think differently about the institution specifically at BGSU or about higher ed more generally? Well, it's, it's definitely been dope, <laughs> considering the fact that a lot of times the social behavioral scientists, they get stereotyped as the people who care about diversity issues. And STEM people are over here in their own world, in their labs. And then business, they're over somewhere else, right? So there are all of these stereotypes and assumptions about what each camp is about and what they're doing. And so to see this wide range of individuals come together and care about equity and figure out how to advance it within their own disciplines has been extremely eye-opening. And it's also taught me, you know, I've, I've always been a big believer in interdisciplinary projects and, and going about things. And this is uh, evidence that something across different perspectives is always going to be stronger than me staying in my own silo and trying to figure it out for myself and speaking to people who have the same language as me as far as jargon and in the higher ed and student affairs side of things and learning how to collaborate and be able to have a healthy debate and still know that we are at the root of it. We all still care about the same thing. Speaking of thinking across disciplines, research has shown that when a field becomes dominated by women, 
pay decreases. So fields that used to be predominantly male experience a pay drop when the field becomes more closely associated with women. This is true in education, right, in fields like mine, in English. There is a concern that this could happen as more women enter STEM fields. And we also know that there is a deep funding disparity between humanities disciplines and some of the STEM fields. So how do you think institutions should address these kinds of gender gaps in disciplinary value and funding? Interesting. I think one of the most important things that comes out of the research in these areas about why this why this is happening is the challenge of addressing implicit biases, right? So an important way that the institution can address this is by making the evaluation of faculty work, the valuation, the rewarding of faculty work as transparent as possible, right? So make the criteria by which you are judging faculty performance as visible as possible, as clear cut as possible. That will help address issues of differing valuation. We also need to acknowledge that this happens and that this exists. And we can't pretend, well, I know in other disciplines this happens, but this would never happen here. This would never happen in my department. I judge everyone fairly. You need to acknowledge that nobody judges anybody fairly. That's not physically possible. There's always going to be implicit biases. What you can do is make uh, the biases visible make them something that we're all aware of, and then make the criteria for valuing, whether that's ranking people for a job, uh, a faculty job position, or considering pay or merit raises, things like that, make the criteria as visible as possible. So that's a really concrete thing that institutions can do to address some of these issues. Anything you want to add, please? Yeah, I think, you know, we ignore history so much. And so, we know it happens. It's happened in these other fields. And so how can people in leadership roles look to these past occurrences to be proactive and to say, okay, the implicit bias was clearly there. The underlying message is a devaluing of women. And so how can we use these really terrible things that have happened to make sure that they don't happen again? And I think that's powerful. And going back to what Peg said, let's not keep on sweeping things under the rug. Things happen, and when you have a society that's built on discrimination and seeing certain people as superior and others as, as barely human, you know, we have a lot of work to do. And using those things that have happened throughout history to not let them happen again. It's a simple but not so simple because <laughs> things keep on happening again. <laughs> Promoting gender equity in academic STEM environments is the core of your project. How does this project fit into the focus on diversity and inclusion practices within BGSU and throughout academia? So how are you addressing some of these policy and training to ensure that as we hire in the future, we are in fact diversifying who we are bringing into campus? This is a three-year project, and we have funding for three years. We're really hoping and working towards a lot of what we're doing to be institutionalized. So our ultimate goal is to make allyship and inclusive leadership the norm and expectation at BGSU. That means that going forward, all new faculty will engage in in these issues and have some training on allyship. What are the concrete issues? But moving beyond just awareness of the issues to actions, what are strategies and actions that are proven effective? How can we work with faculty, with chairs and directors to bring new faculty on board? We don't 
need to train everybody. Research has, has shown that you, you're not going to reach everybody with this message that this is important, that inclusion and diversity is important. But if we can train a critical mass, somewhere in the vicinity of 40 or 50% of faculty, and then new faculty as they come in, new chairs and directors as they step into that role, we're hoping that we're going to be able to sustain this across the campus, not just in STEM departments, but uh, university-wide in all disciplines. So while the funding is coming from the National Science Foundation, which is um, tailoring our focus on STEM disciplines, our goal with the support of the provost, uh, the president, and the deans is to roll these things out and make them part of the fabric of the entire university. So we're piloting this stuff now, hoping it will become just part of what BGSU does, and that allyship and inclusive leadership just becomes part of our identity. I'm curious, all of this sounds so wonderful, right? How do you balance the carrot and the stick to getting folks to change their practices to think about these things and to function as effective allies? Part of what we're doing is setting an expectation. And so we're working, for instance, with the college deans to add some inclusive leadership items to the annual evaluation of chairs and directors. That's going to set an expectation. This is going to be part of how you're evaluated, so you probably better do something about these particular inclusive uh, leadership practices. The, that's sort of the stick. The carrot is how can the Allies Project help support you in meeting those goals, meeting those objectives? So we're, we're balancing setting an expectation and through institutional practices, making that part of how faculty and chairs and directors are potentially evaluated, and then providing the resources and the scaffolding to get faculty to that point. So it's a little bit of both, for sure. Blaze, as we wrap up, what advice would you have for people who want to be part of these solutions and for young people who are maybe leaving college now and thinking about their own futures as leaders, whether in higher ed or in other fields? I would say as important as it is to have content knowledge about different subject matter and know about what microaggressions are, know what implicit bias is, know, you know, what oppression is and all of those kind of things. It's also really, really important to know how to engage in a dialogue and to know how to be critiqued and to be challenged, even when you're coming from a good place. And so you may have read all of the books and still get into a space where you're really called out and, you know, challenged for something that you thought you were doing with really great intention. And so being able to grow and learn. And if you want to be an ally, you have to be in partnership with those that you are allying for. And so not seeing yourself as this savior and coming at it from a paternalistic standpoint, but wanting to be in partnership and always listening first is going to be key. And sometimes it's about standing up and saying and doing what's right. And sometimes it's about stepping back and allowing for someone else's voice to be heard because your privilege takes it for granted that people would listen to you. And so balancing those roles in your allyship. Thank you so much, Peg and Blaze. It was a pleasure talking with you. Had a great time. Thank Thank you. You can find Big Ideas on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our producers are Chris Caveira and Marco Mendoza with sound engineering by A.C. Luffel. Research assistance for this podcast was provided by ICS intern Nicole Zuko with editing by Stevie Shurek. This conversation was recorded in the Stanton Audio Recording Studio in the Michael and Sarah Culleen Center at Bowling Green State University. Mm-hmm.